You're listening to There Ought to Be a Law, the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by me, Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has worked to make cars safer. I can't really see you wearing polyester. I know. It's surprising looking at me now that I'm... <laughs> Was well, not a disco guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The guy who cut the the chain fence at Woodstock, and then it's like, yeah, I'm gonna go home now. I've done my part. Yeah, that's right. Uh, hey, is it time to say hello? Yeah, say hello. Hello. <laughs> hey, All right, hey listeners. Hey, listeners. Welcome back for another episode of the GM Cruise Debacle. Okay, that's not the name of the show, but you know that's what we're gonna start off with because GM Cruise has been began testing their all-electric driverless taxis in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, I don't understand, but this is what they said. Uh, so the North Carolina Department of Transportation is not required to get a permit to test driverless technology on the roads in Raleigh. A state law passed in 2017 um, states that no driver's license is required to operate one. The registered owner of a driverless car is responsible for any violations and the vehicles are required to meet federal safety regulations. So I have a question, particularly about point two, the registered owner of a driverless car is responsible for any violations. Who is the registered owner of these cars? I'm assuming it's Cruise. I'd have to assume that because they're not you know, selling these things yet. So essentially all the vehicles they're testing would be owned by them. But, I mean, so they've made a bunch of violations in California we're aware of. Like, uh, again, how many, you know, I got two points on my license for, for ignoring, a for claiming to go the wrong way down a one-way street. A cop was just bored. So how many points do they have on their license in California? I don't know. How does, uh, does GM, is GM a licensed driver? How do you, See, how do you approach their license? I See, it says no driver's license is required to operate one. But there's a minimum age of 12 to ride in one unsupervised. So there's a range of penalties associated with points on your license, right? So right. they're immune from those penalties. That's that's a pretty good deal. Yeah. How many points do you get for driving into a fire truck? All of them? Well, I assume that, that, all of the points. That just sounds like state law gone wrong that's not protecting consumers. Um, you're, you're functionally exempting a an unproven uh, driver, which would be a software or hardware driver from you're exempting them from state law that applies to every other driver on the road. Huh? Okay. Well, uh, the mayor of Raleigh said, I'm, I'm excited. They're here testing this out and people bring up the safety issues. And she says, it's always a concern, but so are people driving. <laughs> we have more accidents now than we've ever had. So let's put on cars on the road that don't have people in them and are set up by a guy named Kyle. Like, I mean, I mean, this is all just more of the same aspirational junk we've seen, you know, it's being spread like mayonnaise across the country um, ahead of that, the rollout of these vehicles. They're not just showing up in Raleigh. They're in Nashville. They're all over Texas and Miami. Um, and, I, you know, 
without if citizens can't stand up in their localities where these things are and somehow force a change in the process that gives them more power and takes away some of the authorities that states have in this area which you know the states are making the decisions for you know your street in this case and what can go on your street and you have very little ability to push back on that um it's a tough situation for consumers to be in but you know this plan has been laid out. I mean, this law has been in place since 2017 before, you know, driverless vehicles were a twinkle in many people's eyes. So this has been well planned and executed on behalf of, you know, the industry. Well, people perceive that it's a gold rush. And uh, one of my professors in college gave me an expression. He said, if there's a gold rush, sell shovels. And uh, uh, and so these people are all shoveling it, I believe. <laughs> I get the joke that you know, there's some double. Oh, you're you're good. You're you're uh, right on top of that. That's good. Look at that. Good, Anthony. Uh, speaking of somebody else's shoveling it, let's go to Tesla. Uh, so, you know, this cyber truck thing. I don't know. I don't know what you want to call this thing. Uh, so they have the uh, production uh, production candidates. And now my understanding is when auto manufacturers have a production candidate, they're like, hey, Everything's ready to go. We're done. The design is good. We're just making sure like we're having the people in the factory do a test run through it and, you know, make sure everyone knows this is where my tools are. This is how the thing, blah, blah, blah. Well, I don't know how they're referring to the Cybertruck because um, Elon sent out an email to his engineers saying, due to the nature of Cybertruck, which is made of bright metal with mostly straight edges, as if they didn't, uh, do they all wear blindfolds? Any dimensional variation shows up like a sore thumb. Okay, good. He continued, all parts for this vehicle, whether internal or from suppliers, need to be designed and built to sub 10 micron accuracy. Huh? That means all part dimensions need to be the third decimal place in millimeters and tolerances need to be specified in single digit microns. Uh, so I have a lot of questions about this. Um, I, and, and Fred, I think you can answer them. I'm just going to fire them all out at once. So Wait, was that your best Musk impersonation? Nah, I, I don't even know what okay. he sounds like, tell you the truth. I have right. no clue. Just, I, I mean, don't either. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, okay. That, that's great that he's listened to the show and he realizes, hey, these things are going to look ugly. Uh, but sub-micron, what is it? Sub-10-micron uh, accuracy. So, uh, stainless steel is a metal, right? Yes. Okay, and metal will expand and or contract based on the ambient temperature. Correct. Correct. You're turning into a real uh, hey, nerd. You know, look, you're you're I'm you're helping these me. <laughs> okay, so is stainless steel impervious to climactic changes? No, of course not. Uh, okay, so climactic, minor, cli you know, cli climate change, whatever, mm. something tectonic, the tectonic. Changes are affected yeah. too. Yeah, you know, if I breathe on it. Uh, okay, so, so then he goes out and he explains this, but then he says, uh, then he explains what a micron is to his engineers. So I have there's only two conclusions I have from this. One is Elon, the world's greatest engineer, just learned what a micron is, or Elon, the world's greatest engineer, hired a bunch of engineers who don't know what a micron is. What's happening? Well, it's hard to know. Uh, you know, he's the boss, so he does what he wants to do. But let me let me just state that building things to gross structures to within one micron over and over again with high accuracy and high precision 
uh, would sink the company. It just it can't be done at any kind of reasonable cost. It's a it's a huge challenge. That's like saying you're going to build a mirror that is suitable for optical use as long as a car, and then drive it down the road and bang it with hammers and do all the things that happen to cars, and it's still going to be an optically perfect mirror. That's that's not the way people treat mirrors. It's not the way people treat cars. Um, I. You know, I guess the good news here is it's one way of guaranteeing that there'll never be a lot of these cyber trucks on the road if they really hold to that. Fred, I just don't think you have the right attitude to work for Tesla. I mean, that's not the the can-do mythical thinking that Sir Elon requires. Well, I, I don't like the 80-hour work weeks either. So there's <laughs> a I have a couple of bars. Okay, so even saying that, like these they have to be within 10 microns can you visually see and notice a deviation of 10 microns with the human eye oh yeah you can yeah, you can. yeah. oh really okay sure. all right well there goes that theory throw that up. but <laughs> but i imagine the the so he says i remember when the model 3 was coming out he's like everything has to be so perfect they have to match the exact specs on our website with the gaps and the only thing we want our customers to go in there with with tape measures and the only thing we'll see if their their tape measures don't have the right numbers is that their tape measures are wrong i mean my thought was well who's measuring gaps with a tape measure it's not well, how yeah, you that's measure a, <laughs> that's stupid i think that's a self-limiting process <laughs> yeah. right there yeah but your tape measure doesn't go down to microns <laughs> I mean, even forget even doing like you know the 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 centimeter gaps that are required on door panels for them to open and close for clearance. Like you don't you don't use tape measures for that. I mean, you you have feeler gauges. You have something else. You use a <laughs> well. These uh, days, you use a, uh, a, a an electronic caliper. But you know, caliper. I've got one of those somewhere. So you know, it's it's capable of measuring things down to tens of microns. Um, which is like a ten thousandth of an inch, so it's it's capable of doing that. The thing is, that's that's not a stable measurement because that's subject to differential heating. It's you know how hard did you slam the car door? Did you did you move any of the screws that are holding on the attachment lugs? There's just there's lots of little bits and pieces. So I agree with his statement that it's going to be readily visible when these things are not aligned. That, that will show up. It harkens back to what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago about repairing these things, trying to trying to fix them. Because when you try to fix them, it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be an enormous task. Um, yeah, repair to, shops don't have that kind of equipment available to get things down to that level of accuracy. I've well, got no, it. They, they don't, and right. and the, and the panels will likely have to be welded into place. And when you weld something, you have a lot of heat distortion associated with that and then when it cools down it distorts even more i you know i i wish him luck but this is this is an enormous engineering challenge he's putting forward for his engineers and now that you know his engineers have done some great things i gotta give him credit for that i mean the, the rockets actually work which was a surprise to a lot of people but having a getting a rocket to work where you've got a lot of people hovering over an individual piece of machinery that needs those kind of accuracy and precision versus banging out a whole lot of cars on a production line where the production staff 
has no interest in or capability of enforcing those kind of standards means that you got to back things into the tooling and you've got to have tooling for the body panels that have much higher accuracy than the desired accuracy of the finished product because things, you know, when you bang them in a press or you put them in a press break or however they're going to shape these things, they they move, right? Things get, the things never come out as smooth as they go in. So uh, I, I see problems ahead, but, you know, he must be a smarter guy than I does. He's got a much better bank account. And he can afford to squander $40 billion on a, on a whim. So he must be well, smart. I'd love to see him squander that money on figuring out why autopilot and full self-driving keeps running into fire trucks versus, you know, honing accuracy on the looks and the vanity of these vehicles down to a micron. That would be uh, a better use of money, in my opinion. Yeah, Full self-driving and autopilot do not drive into fire trucks and emergency vehicles, okay? The, you know, he said... These things are disabled. He's, you know, he's, it's, it's the user who's at fault. I mean, they gave me 15 grand, but they, why would they think this works? Oh, Elon. I'm going to send you some tape on Elon so you can do a better job. <laughs> yeah. Again, I've no clue. I mean, I mean, what does little Lloyd, Lord Fountainroy sound like? I mean, something like that, maybe. I don't know. What did Nero sound like? Nah. Okay. Anyway, uh, hey, listener, if you're thinking, hey, I want to I don't have 40 billion dollars to blow on a on a little app, but maybe I have a hundred and some odd thousand dollars to blow on a cyber truck. But now you listen to us. and You're like, maybe I shouldn't do that. You can take that money and donate to the Center for Auto Safety. You won't get a cyber truck, but you'll get a tax deduction. I'm not an accountant. OK, <laughs> moving on. There is a great article. We have a link to which states have the deadliest rush hour. Um, and, uh, the answer, I'm just going to cut right to it. Alaska had the deadliest rush hour of any state in the U S accounting for 30% of all traffic deaths. On the other hand, motorists in New Hampshire were least likely to die during rush hour where only 19% of the state's fatal crashes occurred during that period. The spokesperson for the New Hampshire department of transportation said, well, wicked safe drivers. Yeah. Come on. This is, I mean, that was better no. than my Elon. Yeah, no, you know, it was interesting. It was an interesting study. I mean, basically, I think what it comes down to is that the <laughs> the, uh, the places with the worst traffic where people are crawling during rush hours tend to experience less injuries and fatalities that, during rush hours. Um, but that was, I, I don't know. Fred had an opinion, I think, along those lines as well. Sure. Well, what is the characteristic of traffic during congestion? A lot of spittle on the inside of my windshield. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's another aspect of it, too, which is that the traffic tends to move slowly. Mm. And we know that there is a very strong correlation between the speed of a vehicle and the likelihood that somebody's going to get injured. Even if, uh, you know, even if there's a lot of collisions, like my early life experience with the um, crash cars, what are the, what are those called? Demolition Derby. Demolition. No, no. At the, uh, at the, the deer you hit. What the hell? Oh, uh, the uh, bumper cars. Bumper cars. Bumper cars. Yes. Well, people generally walk away from the bumper car collisions because they're relatively slow. But if you did the bumper cars at 80 miles an hour, there people are not as likely to move away from it. Uh, they call that NASCAR, by the way. <laughs> so, 
Um, yeah, I, I think that it's got nothing to do with the population density because population density of New Hampshire is not too different than the population density of Alaska, I guess, at least compared to other states. Um, the point they make in the article is that it's actually related to how rural the state is. And the, the less congested the state is, the more likelihood you are, uh, the more likelihood you have to be injured in a rush hour accident simply because cars go faster in the rural states because there's less congestion. But it doesn't hold true since New Hampshire is the least or the best state, but it's not very congested. But hey, what do I know? There must be more sophistication here that I missed. Well, I mean, we already know you don't know enough to work at Tesla with you, that attitude problem you have there, Mr. 10 Microns. Uh, let's give a follow-up. Uh, a month, astute listeners, a month or two back, we talked about the right to repair laws. Do you remember that, astute listeners? Pull up your notes. There'll be a quiz in a second. There won't be a quiz unless Fred has one. Uh, basically, the what we talked about was saying uh, it was in Massachusetts where they passed a law to say, hey, uh, independent dealerships separate from the car dealers uh, have the right to go in there and repair your vehicle. And you as a consumer have a right to have all of your data and everything that the car collects about you, the car that you own. Uh, well, NHTSA at the time is like, nah, I don't think so. I don't think so, bro. You can't have that. But thankfully, a couple of weeks ago, they uh, put out a letter backing saying wait a second we didn't mean to say that and it's a little confusing i don't i don't understand so you know a big part i think a big part of the problem was the that they allowed for remote access in the um, law that was put out and nitsa was reading that as remote access from anywhere whereas it appears that the state or the, the the people behind the bill were reading that as you know very restricted access from a location like a bluetooth access versus having this available to people on the internet um so nitsa came back from a very strong stance saying they were going to preempt this law to saying well we talked to them and we think we found a way to work this out and you know manufacturers are going to have some time to get this into their system basically what it looks like is providing for a Bluetooth access or something like that that's restricted in geographic scope to um, people who need to work on these cars. So wasn't there a message from the New England Patriots threatening to throw NHTSA into the Boston Harbor? There's, <laughs> uh, there's a I, tradition. Like there's a tradition there. Uh, <laughs> for fans of history, you, you may have heard about the Boston Tea Party. So is does it look like this right to repair? Because this right to repair law we've talked about is more than just your data inside your car. It's more expansive to your electronics, your phone, your computers, your television, your blender, your sous vide machine, your shoelaces, all sorts of things. Is this, how does this, I don't know if you know, how does this affect other parts of this? And will this expand to other states or other states saying, hey, this is a pretty good idea, Massachusetts. So, I mean, I don't know why people put on your right blinker when you turn left, but this is a good idea. God, I think the nightmare for manufacturers would be having to comply with a different set of right to repair laws when they cross state lines. Um, 
that doesn't sound like something they'd be excited about. I think that a federal right to repair law would be a great way to go here, particularly since, you know, vehicles aren't the only thing involved here, you know, tractors and phones, just, I, I won't name them all. Anthony just did, but there's so many areas where there's a consumer issue here, their privacy issues, their cybersecurity issues, and, you know, a federal right to repair law that digs in here and then, you know, plants a stake allowing for consumer privacy and also, you know, allows this technology to continue to develop, um, which is also important, um, is is what needs to be done ultimately. I, I, I st- state by state effort in this area, an area that's still developing gets really complicated really fast. Hmm. And so I believe we have friends at uh, US Perg that are working on this on a larger scale, the federal level. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. So we're not the only good people in town. There's others just like us, but give us your money. Okay. That might have been, look, it's better than, we're not going to sit here for an hour and just do NPR. And up next, Chuckles and Barry with a puppet show on the radio. Nobody wants a mug with your face on it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Mug on a mug. Come on. It's a great idea. I don't know why you keep shooting that idea down. Speaking of well, other, we, we, yes. we workshopped it, <laughs> and you know it just just wasn't a winner. I'm sorry. Yeah, it didn't make it past the rehearsal podcast. Uh, uh, neither neither <laughs> Michael nor I made it to the top three among us either. So we'll we'll have to see where that goes. But that was just an opening jars of pickles. Um, <laughs> hey, let's talk to one of my uh, my wife's favorite topics: uh, motorcycles. You guys remember motorcycles? Thankfully that. Now, 18-year-old living with me has not made any movement towards a motorcycle because he'd be homeless. So the Institute for the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety has a great article we have a link to in the description uh, about motorcycle safety. And here's a great little paragraph from it I will recite. Motor- motorcyclists are often labeled as risk takers, so perhaps that's why our society continues to accept the loss of life. It's true that riding involves extra risk compared with driving passenger vehicles, but it's possible to reduce the risk without diminishing the joys and thrills that define motorcycling. If we're serious about reducing motorcyclists' deaths, we need, at a minimum, universal helmet laws in all states, anti-lock braking systems on all new bikes, crash avoidance systems that detect motorcyclists, and a plan for lowering speeds of all vehicles on the road. So... When I read that, a couple of things just shocked me. Wait, there's not like helmet laws in every state? Uh, like, it's, it's, what? That's a crazy area because there are states where this literally comes up almost every year, people trying to get uh, helmet laws repealed. Um, you, you would think it's, you know, it's the smart thing to do. It's clearly the safe thing to do, but there are still a lot of people who dislike helmet laws and, and state legislatures. Um, sometimes those, you know, helmet law, I believe there was a helmet law thrown out. I can't remember if it was Nebraska somewhere in the past six months or so. Um, and at that point, then the people in favor of helmets go back to the drawing board and it's literally a constant battle in some states. So that's, while it's amazing to you, it is a constant fight. It's it's a similar to other things that um, 
other other state laws like alcohol limits and other things there's always a contrary party it seems to pushing back on safety and towards some perceived freedom i guess you know riding without a helmet is is a freedom to some people um the state in that case is just trying to prevent your brains from being turned into mush so i, I it's I, <laughs> it's a difficult area well people want the right to turn their brains into mush i guess but, you know, there's a couple other aspects to this, too. The argument is that it's freedom versus the nanny state, and that's an issue, I suppose. But the other issue is that if you want the freedom, you should accept the responsibility that goes along with it, which means that you are overburdening the emergency services, you're overburdening the hospital, you're putting a much greater uh, much greater weight on public services than people who do not you know, people who continue to wear a helmet and people who are driving in cars. So, you know, there really should be, at least as part of the discussion, some discussion about the unequal distribution of public services for these people who want to have the freedom to mush their brains. It makes no sense to me. I, I'm, why would you not want to wear a helmet? Forget like, oh, I don't care about my mushy brains. I'm figuring you're doing 60 miles per hour and there's bugs hitting you in the face like i you hear them slap against the glass of your windshield at times slapping against your face that's got to be terrifying <laughs> like i don't well uh. you know the other some of the other things that are i think really important in this conversation you know motorcycle deaths are as high as they've ever been i believe and they're only getting higher and a lot of that has to do with them being hit by drivers and cars that can't detect motorcyclists yet and may not be able to for even longer because NHTSA didn't include motorcyclists and bicyclists and other vulnerable road users in the automatic emergency braking rule that just came out. Um, that's not something they really point to in the article, but it's it's behind that because, you know, the Insurance Institute says they're going to start testing in their tests for automatic emergency braking detection of those type of things. And they also point out another technology that's the, the left turn assist, or I forget exactly what it's called, but it's basically to prevent drivers from hitting motorcyclists and other vulnerable road users while making a turn, which is a very common form of uh, a crash when involving motorcycles. Well, there's another problem with them, which is that usually young people buy them and young people do stupid things. I, have you ever heard of the Washington Beltway? I suppose you have. I was driving on the Washington Beltway one time and four motorcycles passed me. They must have been going about 85 or 90 miles an hour and they were all on one wheel. So they were doing wheelies on the Washington Beltway uh, at about 90 miles an hour. They were having a good time. They were certainly enjoying the freedom and thrills of, of motorcycles, I suppose. Um, and I, you know, it just occurred to me that these people are trusting their lives to the spark plugs that are providing the torque to get them up on one wheel at 90 miles an hour in traffic in Washington, DC. Uh, end of rant, sorry. <laughs> Look, th those were uh, environmentalists because only by wearing down one tire, they're putting out less pollution. Yeah, less particulate emissions yeah. from the Come tires. On, they're, great thing. They're helping people with breathing issues. Uh, so going back to this paragraph I quoted here, the next thing that surprised me was um, putting anti-lock braking systems on all new bikes. Right. How, how How is that not already a thing? 
Well, NHTSA hasn't required it, and the the NTSB has requested that NHTSA require it. I believe in 2021, they said, "Hey, why don't you have you know exactly what you're asking? You know, we've got analog brakes on all cars, and we've had it for decades." or at least two decades, I think. Why, why aren't you requiring it on motorcycles? It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And that's a response was, well, right now it's on about 60% to 70% of motorcycles. And we expect that number is going to go up. So we're just going to wait for that number to go up and not do anything about it. Um, which, you know, is they've already got an analog brake system standard for cars written. I can't imagine it's a huge jump to write a rule requiring manufacturers to do it on motorcycles. They just, you know, in their long list of priorities that many of which take a long time to be fulfilled. Like we talked about with rear seat belt reminders recently. Um, that's, that's another one that just gets lost in the, in the shuffle. Crazy. Continuing with our friends at the, Institute for Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. How did I forget this? It was like two seconds ago. I just said the title of it and I couldn't remember him. Okay. Uh, they had another great article about, uh, uh mid-sized cars and rear seat safety. Uh, the title of the article is Honda Accord shines while other mid-sized cars struggle in rear seat safety test. Uh, so, uh, and you know, as we, as shocked me, NHTSA doesn't require this to say, Hey, who cares what happens in the back seat? As we learned a couple of weeks ago from Beth Brook, they only care about a mid-sized male in the front driver's seat because women apparently don't exist. Uh, but the Insurance Institute, they're doing great work. And so part of this article is to encourage manufacturers to improve rear seat protection. Their updated tests adds a dummy in the back seat behind the driver. The driver dummy is the size of an average adult man. The rear dummy is the size of a small woman or 12-year-old child or me. Uh, IIHS researchers also developed new metrics that focus on the injuries most frequently seen in backseat passengers. Why is that? I mean, I already know this. I don't even, I don't even know why I'm here. I'm just asking the same question. Why does <laughs> NHTSA suck? That's all of my questions. Like, that's, uh, yeah, that's harsh there. You're being I rude mean, to our, our, our friends and colleagues at NHTSA. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay, I'll, rephr I'll rephrase. Plans. I'll rephrase my question. Why do f the people who fund NHTSA suck? Because if NHTSA be had more funding, we're the taxpayers. Well, that's the American. Oh, damn it! American public. That's kind of a broad brush oh, there, Anthony. Yeah. What I, what I, I think you're trying to ask why? Why has NHTSA not done more to ensure the safety of rear seat passengers. There you go. I think Suck. that's a good question. I mean, it's something we've certainly pointed to when we see a lot of seat collapses, front seat collapses, and injuries to children in the back seat. It's something we've been pointing out for a long time now, and a number of other groups have been pointing out. And, you know, the victims and survivors of children who've been killed or injured in these crashes have been pointing out. And there's just never been movement by NHTSA to strengthen, you know, the front seats to protect people in the rear seats. And that's just one of many issues that can occur in crashes. I think you see in the article where they're talking about what happened in some of the cars where the rear seats weren't protective. And you see the dummies submarining out from under their seat belts, which is, you know, a horrible proposition if you're in a crash. And some other problems that suggest that, you know, manufacturers aren't really doing their due diligence on testing 
rear seat occupants when they're building these vehicles. And the reason they're not is because more people like NHTSA aren't forcing these vehicles to be tested with dummies in the rear seat. And that's what we talked about with Beth a couple of weeks back. And it's really important that we get more dummies of more sizes, female and male, older, representing older occupants and children into different places in the vehicle and make manufacturers test uh, or in cap uh, test to, you know, incentivize improvements in the rear seat safety that w- we just haven't seen. And that's not to mention things like pretensioners, um, which probably could have helped in, in some of these vehicles in those submarining incidents. No, sorry. <laughs> I, did I put y'all to sleep for once? No, no, not at all. <laughs> I, I thought Fred had a comment there, but no. He did not. Um, okay, so hey, yeah. So I mean, it's a great thing that IHS is testing um, more dummies and more seats. We think that's something NHTSA should do as well. And it's pretty clear from the test that manufacturers aren't doing a good job here. And don't sit in the back seat or be a woman, right? That's the current takeaway until that's improved. Is that no? That's not. Well, I mean, what you got to get to where you're going, whether they've you know <laughs> planned for your safety or not, right? You don't really have a choice there. Yeah, that's that's horrible. It's very disturbing. Um, but I, let, me, let me just say, let's our hats are off to IIHS for doing this test and for illustrating uh, so vividly the point that there's a lot of work to be done on rear seat safety. As Michael was saying uh, last week, the whole idea that you're safer in the back seat than the front seat has been overtaken by events. The technology has made the front seat much safer than it was in the past. And there's no evidence anymore that the back seat is safer than the front seat for anybody, much less people of, you know, small stature or large stature or any particular kind of stature. So it's just, it's a big gap, a lot of work left to be done. And when these crash tests are being done, there's a lot of empty seats in them. All right. So why don't you fill up the damn seats with test dummies so we get more information? Certainly won't. Uh, in any way degrade the value of the tests. These tests are quite expensive. Let's get the most value out of them. Let's get the most data that we can out of them and, uh, you know, extend themselves a little bit. I think more dummies and fill it up with groceries and typical things that people are traveling around with. Um, and even, I, even the conservatives would agree there's plenty of dummies in the government. Yeah, we'll put some of them deep staters in the car. There you go. Again, accents, not my thing. I'm not sure who I was channeling there, but, um, you know, Michael's giving me a dirty look. He's just, like, just <laughs> let me cover the Southern accents. You <laughs> <see out of> <laughs> <laughs> yeah, slap oh, that boy upside the head with a brick. I, I know. Oh man, we got to do that. Let's, let's move into something somewhat entertaining and fun. How about that? How does that, how does that sound? And everyone's looking at the screens like, oh, what is he going to talk about next? I know what it is. Do you? Which one is it? Because I'm not sure. I'm flipping between the two. I think, I, you know, I, I think we need to talk about some of the things that have been in cars that are disappearing. Oh, the okay. Here's the That's one. That's the only a, fun thing I saw on the list this week. Right. Anthony, sorry. This is uh, an article in Jalopnik. This is fun. What they did is they... Uh, basically surveyed their readers saying, hey, what do you think of the next automotive trends that are going to see dying in the next few years? And it's fascinating, like what they have. It's all over the place. Like the first thing they've listed is EVs 
basically their readers saying, yeah, EVs, electric vehicles, they're dead. Not going to happen. Dumb idea. I clearly, they got Fred's input on that one. Um, so he, he's celebrating. Uh, but then they have other things in there, which I think we all agree with, such as minivans. It's just. Are, are minivans. minivans really going away? Aren't they a pretty good option for people who do transport a lot of things versus buying a massive truck to do the same thing? Well, see, that's the interesting part of this because it says minivans. And like the argument is that they're re- being replaced with crossovers. But another item on the list is crossovers. So maybe <laughs> <laughs> everyone's taking the subway. I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, one here that we totally agree with um, is level three autonomy. Oh man. Uh, yeah, it's from the article. It just doesn't work with the transportation infrastructure in place right now. Uh, and we agree a thousand, thousand percent. Yeah, um, we're really worried about whether people can really take over when they need to in those vehicles. I mean, I think Tesla owners have proven they can't. Yeah, um, well, it's Mercedes would, would counter that they aren't Tesla and they'd be right. <laughs> they would be. I mean,. Yeah. You know, if if somebody's going to pull it off, maybe Mercedes, but I, I'm very doubtful. Very doubtful. Well, remember, uh, Mercedes is only limited to very low speeds, right? And yeah. uh, you know, and level three is level three is completely safe if your car isn't moving. It becomes <laughs> it becomes a little less safe when it's moving slowly. Um, it becomes very unsafe when you're moving quickly. So, if you can keep your level three cars to speeds below those which are attractive to potential buyers, then it's a it's a good option. All right. There's one in here that scares me. It's a the stop and start systems. Uh, right. I thought people were just messing around in my neighborhood when I first came across it, where they're at a traffic light and you just hear nothing. It's quiet. I'm like, oh, they're in a hybrid. And then boom, the engine starts up all of a sudden. And yeah. so people told me, oh, no, that's some emissions control thing yeah that's that's that was put into play kind of right around the time when your spare tires stopped being put in your in in new vehicles um they limited weight with the spare tire and then they limited the fuel and emissions fuel use and emissions created when people are sitting at stoplights or when their cars in drive but at a uh, stoplight i'm sure everyone who's gotten a car in the last few years we've gotten a lot of complaints on this feature and i'm sure that everyone who's gotten a car in the last few years has uh interacted with one of these buttons uh for me you know great safe fuel i i I wonder if there is additional wear on the starter uh that's something that a lot of people have cited as a problem my you know pet peeve is that in the middle of the summer when my volkswagen shuts off the air conditioning shuts off as well that's no fun at a long stoplight so it was one it was kind of a you know one of these things that in retrospect it seems it's a bad idea for consumers in a way um, like the spare tire uh, but it's doing things to save fuel. So there is a, you know, a good reason behind it, even if it does annoy a lot of uh, our members and listeners. Well, I think that the momentary gap in your air conditioning and your Volkswagen is clearly a first world problem, Michael. Yes. We'll yes. just have to, we'll just have to let that one go. That. Yeah. <laughs> he owns that, but he also lives in the first world. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, what else does he have to complain about? 
I mean, uh, oh, he's he's always got lots. He's good. <laughs> okay, good. He fills up the airtime very well. You know, I did drive around in my previous Volkswagen for about a year or two with no AC at all. Which let me tell you, that was fun commuting to Dupont Circle for work every day in the summer. But you know, it was. Uh, I don't know why I chose to do that, other than my car was on its last legs and I was too cheap to fix it. But it was it was not good for passengers. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Michael was not too cheap. It was just he needs more donors, more donations from <laughs> listeners like you. I, you know, we say this in jest, but I'm not. I, I, we know where all of you live. My last name ends in a vowel. Did I just threaten people? Oh my god! Don't worry, I ever describe myself as the child-sized doll. I don't know what's wrong with me today. We Chucky, normally record great, in the morning. <laughs> yeah, great. It's not getting any better. Look, let's let the grown-up speak. So let's go into the towel, okay? Today's uh, topic is going to be radar and LIDAR and uh, Duran Duran, apparently. I don't know. Okay, not Duran Duran, but radar and LIDAR. Does that sound good? And Klinger? You've now entered the Dow of Fred. <laughs> I'm tough. <laughs> I'm just giving you a, a, a little dead space to put it in the intro, Anthony. No, don't that's laugh good. at me. I'm no, trying to help here. You did. That's great. But the intro for Tao of Fred is like, it's like a second long. That was great. So I gave it a little buffer. That's all right. Uh, so, uh, so Anthony, I sent you some homework. What is radar? Uh, radar is, um, is a character on MASH. It's something that bats don't use. It's a, it's a radio something. It's radio waves bouncing off of things, and you're counting how many, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, when it gets back to you. I didn't do my homework. Uh, well, that's not so bad. Um <laughs> So, uh, radar, basically, for our interested readers, is electromagnetic energy in the radio range that is emitted by a source, then propagates into space, it hits a target, and some of the energy bounces back towards the receiver. And uh, since the speed of light is a constant, and since the radio frequency is a source as one kind of light, actually, then um, you can, by measuring the time it takes to return, you can tell how far away the target is. So if you've got, that's the that's the fundamental. Um, the difference between radar and lidar is fundamentally that lidar just simply uses a different frequency of electromagnetic radiation. So because it has a much higher frequency, you are able to look at much smaller things with lidar than you can with the um with the radar could you so look there's, at 10 micron uh, gaps on a tesla Cybertruck? you actually could if you oh. want to do that and mm -hmm. and uh people who use optical surface contour measurement systems which i've become familiar with in one german company actually use light to do just that and they use it at bmw it's one of the reasons the bmw hoods are so nifty looking because they do use optical systems to measure the the contours um, anyway, there's a good part and a bad part being able to measure small things. The good part is you can measure the small things. The bad part is you have to measure lots and lots of small things in order to make up a big scene. So radar's got lower frequencies, and so it kind of looks at a broader range of things than LIDAR, and you don't have to have as many pulses to get back the images. Um that probably makes obvious sense, but if you know, like if you look at a picture with a microscope, you'll see lots and lots of little dots. If you look at it with your eyes, it's more like looking at it with radar, where you're looking at 
kind of the gross characteristics of things. Um, there are many types of radars that you can that you can specify and that you can buy, and the kinds that are used in the vehicles are primarily an impulse radar, which sends out a little, as you would expect, a little pulse of radio energy, then waits for that pulse to come back and determines where the pulse came from by using directional antennas. So if it comes from the right and you know the distance, you know the angle it's coming from and you know the distance, you've got a pretty good idea of what that is. The problem is that using radar, you don't really know the fine characteristics. So a, a fire hydrant looks a lot like a child with radar. Okay, because they're roughly the same size, they've got roughly the same kinds of, of contours. So how is a how is a AV to know what's going on? Well, there's another kind of radar called a frequency modulated continuous wave radar. Now that's a whole mouthful, but what it means is that you're sending out continuous radio waves, but you're changing the frequency of it as though you had an FM radio. And because you're changing the frequency of it, you can look at different characteristics of the targets than if you only had the impulse coming back. So it gives you a, a better way of looking at at the objects, how the objects are moving, uh, maybe detect motion. And if your fire hydrant moves, you can be pretty sure it's not a fire hydrant, right? It's uh, it's something other than a fire hydrant. And that gets into how the information is processed within the control system of the car. And that's a that's a very complicated process, but the the fundamental of it is that the imagery that the car is using to determine its trajectory and its neighborhood are based on the returns it's getting from the radar. So there's a couple of a uh, couple of things to know about that. There's an analog side to the radar, which is generation of the pulse, generation of the radio frequency and receiving the information back, there's also a digital side. And the digital side takes that information and turns it into the kind of information that the computer and the car can use to figure out what the surrounding is. In order to do that, it scans across some range, looks at the different objects within the range. If So if it looks straight ahead, doesn't see anything out to a range of, we'll say, you know, 30 meters, which is like a which is like 30 yards or 100 meters, it's going to say, okay, I got an open road there. <clears throat> if it looks off to the side and sees some return from the side, well, it's got to really think about what that is. So it would probably look at it again. That's called the repeat frequency, right? So how often is it going to look at the side? If it sees that the thing on the side of the road has changed its relative position at the same speed as the car is moving, that's a pretty good indication that it's a stationary object, all right? Just because the relative motion, if the relative uh-huh. motion equals the actual absolute speed, the thing is probably stationary. Okay. If the so, relative, go ahead. Well, I I get what you're saying here, but I'm thinking as as a layperson, I'm buying a car. It said it's, it has radar detection on it or whatnot. My car has that, like, but I it doesn't give you any more information of what kind of radar it is, what kind of width it has, what kind of range it has. Like yeah. what is a what does a consumer have? Because like I, I've told you the incident where our automatic emergency braking didn't respond because its field of view is really narrow, but they don't tell you that in the sales brochure. They do not. They're not required to, and they do not. Um so you'd have to look deeper into it. 
the salesperson who is offering you the vehicle probably doesn't understand the radar specifics either. So you'd have to look. Turn on the radio. Well, yeah, sometimes they can do that. So it's 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 complex. Anyway, new radars are coming out all the time. There's one called the 4D radar, and uh, I looked into that a little bit. And basically, what it said is that the conventional radars that are used in a vehicle kind of only scan left to right, and they they look for what's in front of the car, but they've got a very narrow beam in the vertical dimension. So they're they're looking for obstructions, but they don't look up and down to see what's going on. This may be a factor in some of the crashes into trucks that we've been uh, seeing and reporting because right. the truck looks, you know, it, if you look under a truck, it looks like an open road. If you right. look up higher, then you see an obstruction. I don't know that that's a, a factor, but it may be. Anyway, this new radar has been designed so that it's got um, an antenna configuration that looks up and down as well as look sideways. Now you can do that with millimeter wave radar because millimeter wave is just exactly what it sounds like. The the waves are very small. They're only a millimeter long. That means you can generate them and receive them with a very small antenna. So you can cram a lot of antennas into a package that you can put on the bumper of your car or in the front of your car and use those uh, either electronically to scan or use them, you know, move them to scan. If you, by the way, you may have heard the uh, expression phase array radar, that's electronic scanning using a, a, a bunch of antennas. Why, why would we have heard that phrase? Oh, because of your interest <laughs> in uh, early warning detection systems that are looking for incoming missiles. I'm sure everybody's, everybody's heard of NORAD. Everybody knows about long-distance surveillance radars, right? I remember. It was the movie Real Genius. I remember that. They did that because they were creating a, a, some sort of a laser beam for Star Wars. I remember the movie. Come on, Michael. You remember Real Genius, Val Kilmer? He is muted, but he's saying, Anthony, you're the smartest, most beautiful person I've ever seen. No, you saying popcorn. <laughs> yeah, popcorn. Brad, you got to see the movie Real Genius. You'll enjoy it. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I'll I, put that on the list. I will certainly do that. Anyway, so the new the radar is constantly evolving for the vehicles. They seem to be getting better at getting both uh, images from high and low as well as sideways. This is valuable information for the computer that is uh, inside of your car because it takes that information, then it compares it to hypothesis for what these targets mean so it's only got a bunch of points and it has to kind of take those points put them together into a shape and then compare that shape to the logic that's back in the computer and says okay well this looks this looks more like a fire hydrant than a human being and it's moving so i'm going to assume that it's a human being rather than a fire hydrant we talked about this way back when we did the uh the episode about the um, some enchanted evening, right? So, if people want to go back to some enchanted evening, you can get more details on that. But anyway, did you, did you sing in that episode? <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, you haven't you haven't sung in on an episode in a long time. I well, mean, what's I'm, going I'm, on? I'm being careful of your ears. I know you all have headphones on, and I don't <laughs> want to cause any injuries. Um, I'll try to think of something else though that we can <laughs> okay. sing about uh, if you really want that. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, that's what I got to say about radars. The difference between radars and LIDARs, as I said, is fundamentally that the LIDARs have a much higher frequency. Um, because they have a much higher frequency, they're more susceptible to dirt and grime, right? You have to keep the lenses clean. Now, many of you wear glasses, 
and which also work in the light frequency range. And you've probably noticed that when the glasses get dirty, you can't see as well. Uh, this is a problem when you're trying to read. It's also a problem when your vehicle is trying to understand what's in the road ahead of you. Uh, the radars are at a lower frequency, so you've probably noticed that you don't have to clean your FM antenna on your boombox in order to get the radio through, right? So it's it's much less sensitive to dirt, and particularly dirt in the optical path. It's also things like diffraction and refraction that that are affecting this, but I won't go there. Wait, okay, so you just jumped into something here that I, I think Michael wants to scratch his head about, too. So cleaning your radio antenna to get better reception. I, I remember back in the day, a lot of cars driving around that they had uh, coat hangers as their uh, radio antenna. Had one of those. Lousy what, antenna. But, but, cleaning, but also, who, your, your antenna would never get clean because you had to remove it before going into the car wash. Oh. Well, of course, the the boomboxes and the antennas came out at the same time as Duran Duran, and nobody really <laughs> wanted to listen to that, so there's no point <laughs> in cleaning your antennas. Uh, uh, but really, but, cle- okay. Just one more thing to bring up. So sonar pretty much works the same way, but sonar uses sound rather than light or rather than electromagnetic energy. Uh, there's a reason why sonar is used in marine environments because you basically can't broadcast the radar energy into the into the deep water because it gets absorbed by the water this is a shortcoming of radar when you're using it on the road if it's if it's very wet if there's a lot of dirt on it but radar is less sensitive to dirt and grime and and um rain and snow than the lidar so it's a comparatively better but if you have an ultrasonic sensor on the front of your car then that is pretty immune to the kind of of stuff that's right around you um for example you can use ultrasonic sensors to look inside of people to see internal organs and do the imaging of the internal organs so the same principles that allow it to be used for imaging internal organs can be applied to the vehicle environment and can be used to detect objects near your car in front of your car on the side of your car so it's a different frequency range a different medium but the fundamental principle is the same. It sends out sound energy, waits for the reflection to come back from whatever the target is, and then knowing that the speed of sound is roughly 1,100 feet per second in dry air, um, it can go ahead and calculate distance, do some imaging associated with that, depending on how many receivers it's got. Very similar to what the radar can do, but in a different range with different amount of resolution because obviously the frequency of the sound is much much lower than the frequency of either the radar or the lidar so it, it it's not as good at picking up fine objects than uh, than the radar or the lidar have i confused you yet we're we still on board here no sound, the sonar is slower too right say again please it's much, it's much slower the sonar in speed of light yeah 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 it is slower yeah, the processing may not be slower because it uses the same computing uh, systems and similar algorithms, but the actual receipt of the information is slower. But still, 1,100 feet per second is pretty, pretty fast, right? You cover a quarter mile in uh, less than a quarter of a second so, or less than a second. So it's pretty fast. Okay, so uh, again, consumer point of view is what, what am I looking for? Because I see that 
cars now they have uh cameras that do like lane keeping assistance and i don't know wh- what level they do in terms of object detection they have radars that let me know hey if there's a car in front of me apparently the radar can't see motorcycles or people but you know extra points for him um ultrasonic sensors which is from what i've read are mainly used around parking like so i guess they have a very short range and they insist uh assist around uh curbs and like walls and parking garages uh lidar which very few cars have because it's incredibly expensive right now but the prices keep dropping and that's really good for finer detail and so the impression i have is that most manufacturers with the exception of the man behind the curtain have combined all of these are trying to combine data from all of this to build out a bigger picture um is that is that right like what do i what do i look for as a consumer do i it well first of all is my summary of basically what the very lay approach of is that how they're being used well what you look for as a consumer is whether or not a self-driving vehicle is headed your way and then you run <laughs> okay no what i'm talking like look the next when you're you know after you hit your next deer and you're like oh no i gotta buy a new car like what do you I, what are you looking for in in those those safety systems we just talked about like that it has all i'd be of them, looking for some them? kind of validation that the damn thing works you know <laughs> because i would think yeah. well that's the real problem the real problem is you don't know what the specifications are there are no federal requirements for the specifications there are no federal requirements to validate that you've actually achieved performance consistent with those specifications. Um, the AEB standard, which is currently in development at NHTSA, is a huge step in that direction because they're now looking at tests to validate that, in fact, the AEB systems are working. Um, as a consumer, you would want to know that the vehicle does have an AEB system that there's some reason to believe that it actually works at the moment the only thing you can do is google the yeah, results would, and find out which ones work well which ones don't and, yeah you know. i think ihs is the only one really testing and putting out ratings on that and then the united states at the moment oh also probably consumer reports as well on certain features i know they're looking at driver monitoring yeah but beyond that uh you'd be hard pressed to dive into the details of the sensor system and the perception systems and you know all that stuff that goes along with it to try to figure out if this is really going to perform well uh, we would like the government to step in here and establish the standards and a rating system so that people will know that these things actually work uh more important to identify the ones that actually do not work which was somehow left out of the aeb standard and uh kind of where we are so little primer on radar, LIDAR, and ultrasonic sensors. Uh, I love this stuff. If anybody has any <laughs> questions, contact at autosafety.org. Love to love to banter about this. He's not kidding, ladies and gentlemen. He's really upset that Michael and I didn't have more questions. Uh, so please, if you do, contact at autosafety.org. Uh, $10 a question, $15, and he'll come over and give you a back rub. Only some of this is true. I mean, well, everything Fred said is probably true. I don't know. But as a consumer, I guess we're kind of just, you know, left to marketing and and Toyota's safety sense or whatever they call it. But I think to your point is, is, yeah, we don't know without any sort of more of the deep state telling us what to do, man. So without, you know, better regulations and guidelines. Okay. 
I think that'd be good. How about some uh, how about some recalls? Let's do a couple of those real quick. We promised Let's listeners in our last episode that we would talk that. about uh <laughs> man, I gotta you gonna get me in this name again, huh? The the Nicola. Nicola. Nicola, yeah. Uh, yeah. Nicola. Um it was a it was a car these are the guys who faked the car working, right? And pushed it down a hill. I don't anyway. know. These are the guys that make giant this is a giant yeah, semi they make truck. semi trucks. Yeah. yeah, they weren't they were the ones who? who or eh, anyway, uh, there's so many are, fakers out there. Trying yeah. to keep track. they're recalling certain 2022-2023 tray T R E Bev vehicles. The coolant may leak inside the battery pack. Owners are advised to park outside and away from structures. You know, it looks like yeah. The, there's accumulation of coolant in the battery pack that causes a short and increases the risk of fire. I mean, this is um, about 200 vehicles, so it's not a lot, but they are semi-trucks. And, you know, this is one of the few manufacturers of electric trucks. And, you know, it's it's kind of like when, you know, when your only vehicle, remember how GM and Ford have responded to battery fire issues in EVs very quickly. It looks like they're doing something similar here where they're you know advising owners not to, to turn off let's see the main battery disconnect switch leave it on at all times because if you turn that switch off it also turns off the real-time vehicle monitoring and safety systems operation in the vehicle so you want to leave that on to allow for better connectivity with their their fleet program it looks like they have a pretty complex system here uh to keep track of these things and you should be getting a notification letter soon, but the remedies in development. So you, if you do own a fleet of electric semi-trucks, <laughs> <laughs> you'll be getting that soon. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, let's talk, uh, uh, let's see, rear view cameras. Why always with the rear view cameras? Chrysler, uh, rear view camera image may not display. Uh, it's because someone put a thumbprint over it. It's 162,000 plus Chrysler is recalling certain 2022-2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee, Jeep Grand Cherokee L, and Jeep Wagoneer, and Jeep this, blah, blah, blah. The Central Vision Park Assist module software may prevent the rearview image from displaying when the vehicle is replaced in reverse. I am... Again, with these rearview cameras, what, what... Did something become difficult with them all of a sudden? Well, they, what the case, well, the difficult in this case was there was a creature feature installed, the Central Vision Park Assist module, uh, right? That is interfering with the rear view image. I don't know, you know, who knows how these things work in actuality, but it looks like there's you know, yet another problem because one of the safety systems of the vehicle is routed into and through a more complex you know construction of things that include uh you know advanced parking features park assist features that are not connected to federal motor vehicle safety standard 111 that makes a requirement that they have working rear rear view cameras when the car is placed in reverse just when you thought you had enough rear view camera recalls, here comes another one. Incorrect rear view camera image made a display. Oh, that sounds fun. You can see ghosts now. Ford, 
18,513 vehicles. The 2023 F Super Duty F250, F350, and F450 vehicles equipped with the Pro Trailer Hitch Assist. And ladies and gentlemen, if you have a Super Duty and you don't have the Pro Trailer Hitch Assist, what's the point? How are you getting your boat up a hill both ways to your barbecue? Uh, the default rear view camera image may not be displayed when using the Pro Trailer Hist Assist feature. Um, I mean, this is kind of a ditto on the last yeah. one. You know, this is a system that is, you know, it's a system that's operating when you're going in reverse, but it's clearly not, you know, it's it's intended to, it's really a boat safety measure or a trailer safety measure in some respects. It's trying to help you get your trailer hitch hooked onto your vehicle. It's a, you know, it's a convenience that is being tied into the same system as a safety feature, which is the rear view camera. So very similar to the Chrysler situation and, you know, an area where we're, we're we continue to see recall calls you know it's this is one of the number one types of recalls that is filed with NHTSA these days and we're it continually leaves us wondering what's going on with the rearview cameras and all the problems here um and is this somehow connected to all these touch screens and other issues that consumers seem to be having in their vehicles well the software is difficult uh, <laughs> it just is you know but you'd think that these companies would validate their software changes before they put them out into the public domain or before they put them out into their production vehicles. I, I simply don't understand the sloppy software development process that's going on. Uh, you know, granted, it's not an intercontinental ballistic missile, and you, you don't want to be very careful with ICBMs when you put them together. But still, the minimum that you should expect is that the regression testing works and the damn software works in situations where you're expected to work. This is this is really just sloppy, it, sloppy engineering. Yeah. And I feel I feel very similar. I mean, really, all you're doing when when your when your transmission goes into R, that's reversed. The rear camera needs to be displayed in front of the driver. It's very simple, right? <laughs> How are we making this so complex that we're seeing you know twenty, thirty recalls on this issue every year? Yeah, I don't understand what why they're tying into other systems. There, there must be some thought process beyond there, but I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, let's get, well, you yeah. know, I, I, maybe they're buying their software at Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> oh, I just, oh, I just wanted to make sure that we had that reference in the show. Today. Piggly Wiggly would never sell that. Their, no, their standards are far too high. <laughs> that's, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, Fred, you've done a lot this episode to. Uh, let Tesla know that you're unqualified to work for them. Uh, but Piggly Wiggly is hiring, probably. I've never been to a Piggly Wiggly. Um, and I resisted an urge to do my version of a Southern accent. Uh, yeah. But hey, let's... <laughs> Thank you. Let's and, do and one. Resist, resist Elon. <laughs> as well. Resist. Yeah. Yeah. well, you know, you know. Hello, I'm Elon Musk. I don't. Again, I don't know. It's it's probably more like precious, right? Uh, sudden software error. Software error may cause unintended acceleration. <gasps> no rearview camera issue. This is no. uh, almost thirty-eight thousand vehicles. Hyundai is recalling certain twenty twenty-one to twenty twenty-three Elantra HEV vehicles. A software a error, because software is hard, in the motor control unit may cause an unintended vehicle acceleration after the brake pedal is released. That sounds like when I first learned how to drive a stick. Is that yeah, the feature they put in? You know, this appeared to be, you know, a, a, when you hear sudden acceleration, you think about, you know, vehicles going 70 miles an hour into the wall or without brakes. This, this situation appears that... Um, 
the consumers were able to slow the vehicles down using the brakes so that it's right. not not like the Toyota sudden acceleration we saw a decade or more ago where the vehicles somehow the brakes were not working while the vehicles were driving themselves off. And that was the software there. But here it looks like these are mostly low speed incidents. Um, and, you know, I think that customers are going to have to wait on a remedy for this one as well. This looks like a motor control unit software update, and they're not sending out notifications until October. So there's something in the pipe being developed as a fix at the moment. Right. And I'm just going to do one last one. This isn't a recall yet, but there's an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal about Ford and their F-150s. It was just the F-1, no, the F-series pickups where people are driving down the street and all of a sudden these loud noises and high-pitched squeals are coming out of their speaker system, which is just frightening. Uh, it's very bizarre. Uh, in the article, um, there's a Ford, ha from the article, Ford has developed a software fix that customers can get at a dealership or through a downloadable update. The fix uses the amplifier as a filter pre to prevent the speaker noise. Like, okay, so everything above 15,000 hertz, they've just removed. They basically have some EQ in there, like, gone. Uh, but it's funny, one person who had this problem, he just went in and had this 12-volt battery replaced on there, and the problem went away. So this is another one of these things I'm like, yeah, your audio system, it's not new. It's, I don't are they tying this into the safety system what i don't know i mean it, who knows this uh, were these electric vehicles were no they, were they're they the they, they're because i know they there are, been some radio pro interference issues on am radio with that i think we talked about those no this is uh the service bulletin covers expedition suvs and f-150 from the 2021 mm -hmm. to 2023 years including the 2022 uh lightnings so yeah. it's not unique to an ev Maybe they need to clean the antennas. <laughs> there we go. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to the show. Fred wins today's episode with the Piggly Wink you mentioned and a nice callback there. Uh, please download or subscribe and, and download episodes for your friends and, and hide the download somewhere. I don't know how you had to download. Like, yeah, I'm much better when we have coffee and it's morning. You know, I don't want to record in the afternoon again. Well, you know, I, <laughs> I, I know you did this for me. I, I'm the one complaining. <laughs> thanks, everyone. And, thanks. and if you have a, a Hyundai or Kia, go in and get that software update for the anti-theft fix because only 20% have gotten them so far. And we just saw two folks killed in the D.C. area this week by a, by a rogue Hyundai. And I don't think they've caught who, was, who stole it, but this is just a continuing problem. And the only way to stop it is to get the software fixed to the extent that it actually works we're still out out to lunch on that one as well well thank you for listening folks till next week bye bye for more information visit www.autosafety.org